Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Kimberly Murray. Kimberly was appointed as Independent Special Interlocutor for Missing Children and Unmarked Graves and Burial Sites Associated with Indian Residential Schools. It's hard to think of someone better suited for this role. Previously, she served as the Executive Director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. She was Ontario's first-ever Assistant Deputy Attorney General for Indigenous Justice. She's chaired an expert panel on policing in Indigenous communities. And for 15 years, she acted as a staff lawyer and then Executive Director for Aboriginal Legal Services. She joins me on this episode to talk mostly about her current role. That includes work to address trauma, to realize justice, and to advance reconciliation. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. You were appointed the special interlocutor to address what was a really shocking story for many, I think, who were unaccustomed to Canada's history and tragic but not so shocking to many people who were accustomed to that history around unmarked graves. And it started, we had a special debate actually in Parliament around the 215, I should say, unmarked graves in Kamloops. But since that time, there have been many more discoveries, identifications, and it, it, it really took over uh, a good part of a national conversation for a time. And in order to ensure that conversation is continued, you step in into this role and walk me through at the outset this, the scale of this challenge from those 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops to where we're at today and the process that you are undertaking as special interlocutor and where you see this process heading. Yeah, um, you know, it's, uh, I always said, uh, when I'm presenting on what my mandate is, and what I'm doing, and where I'm going, and how I got appointed, um, I always sort of mention right off the beginning that, you know, when Tekemloops announced the 215 uh, recoveries of, of the children, um, you know, Canada immediately came out and said, we're going to appoint an independent special interlocutor. So make sure you, it is an independent special interlocutor position that that's in my title. And uh, it's interesting because a lot of people don't know what that is. Like they don't know what an interlocutor is, what the role of an interlocutor is supposed to be. And, um, you know, it took about a year of of talking to leadership and um, uh, to survivors uh, to determine what, what, the mandate should include. And so, um, you know, because I meet with survivors and elders all the time, they're always, you know, they can't say the word interlocutor. Uh, they don't know what it means. And I tell them, well, I had to look it up in the dictionary as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't really sure what it was supposed to do. Um, but essentially, you know, the way I like to d- uh, explain what my job is, is to say that, you know, I'm here to listen to, to community, to survivors, to elders that are doing this sacred work of recovery and identify the barriers that are getting in their way uh, to be able to uh, respectfully um, find those children. Um, And so, um, you know, I was appointed by Minister Lametti through the Department of Justice, and I've been asked to create um, recommendations for a new legal framework to protect uh, the burial grounds, to help identify the burial grounds. And, um, you know, that's that's a big task when we think about uh, the country and we think about uh, provincial, federal jurisdiction over different areas of law. Um, and, you know, the importance of ensuring the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People and Indigenous Laws are included. Um, when I was appointed in June of last year, Canada, uh, one of the first things they did is they gave me a list 
of communities that were receiving support from the federal government um, that are doing the recovery work. And at that time, the list had about 80 organizations, communities, survivor groups on it. And uh, we now, you know, here we are almost a year later, we, we have over 100 communities doing the searches uh, across the country. And we have many more yet to get started. Uh, and, you know, communities and survivor groups are uh, getting themselves organized, having the important conversations that they need to have about uh, whether they're going to do searches, how they're going to do those searches, uh, and then what will they do once uh, they get that that data back that identifies that there may be potential burials on their on their grounds. Um, so it's um, not something that's going to be done in three years. Uh, it's something that's going to take uh, ten to twenty years uh, for all this work to be complete. And in terms of ensuring that work is complete, record, record keeping, access to the appropriate records, ensuring that for a time, the federal government, certainly the provincial government, certainly the church, all institutions that, that were participants in the really attempted extinction of, of indigeneity in, in Canada, they then were gatekeepers to necessary records to, to keep the truth hidden in, in some ways. Uh, and have you found sufficient access to those records? And where do the barriers continue to, to reside? Yeah, I mean, it's something you, you touched on something that's like... Um, Probably the number one concern that I hear from communities is uh, access to records. Um, and for far too long, everyone just focused on uh, federal records uh, and church records because that's what the you know Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement said. It, it only had obligations on the federal government and the church entities that signed the agreement to provide their records to the TRC, which now are at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. We know that all the records weren't turned over during the life of span of the settlement agreement and the TRC. So there's that leftover work that still needs to be done. Uh, but more importantly, and you touched on this, is that there are records in all these other institutions uh, that weren't required to provide their records to the TRC. Uh, one being, you know, the provincial archives uh, in all the provinces and territories. Um, they house an enormous amount of records that should be uh, examined, not just death certificates or coroner's reports. Um, there's long history of provincial involvement in Indian residential schools and provinces need to turn their mind to that um, and they need to think about what their role was. Um, you know, I can give you an example just in Ontario, in, in the province of Ontario and Quebec, Canada actually contracted with those provinces to do inspections of the schools. And so it, they utilize the provincial school inspection system. And so those records, if we're missing them in the Library and Archives Canada, the copies will be in the creator <laughs> of those records. And that would be the provincial government because they were the ones that went in and inspect, inspected the schools in those provinces. So that's just like one example. But the history of the police services that were involved, uh, fire services, uh, maintenance workers, you know, like um, transfer of lands. There's all kinds of uh, historical records that are housed in provincial archives, um, but and also in universities. 
you know, when I worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, and specific to the missing children uh, work that we were doing, I had asked a number of universities to start looking in their archives for their involvement in medical experiments and for their involvement in residential schools. Um, and none of them provided records to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so I continue <laughs> to urge those very big institutions, U of T, U of A, McGill, um, you know, that we know had direct involvement uh, with the federal government on doing experiments on children in the Indian residential schools. We need to get to those archives and they need to be opened up as well. There was a, in, a November report from your office and it was a summary report, sort of what we've heard report in many ways. I was struck, Elder Jimmy DeRoche had said, it took us a hell of a long time for the church to give us information the federal government is finally at the table. The province is still out there not responding to our requests for their help for their records. They tell us to take them to court. 75% of our people are dead already. If we have to go to court, we're all going to die by that time. And there is a, it's, it's an odd thing to think through, but despite it being so very long ago in some cases, this tragedy and unearthing this tragedy and, and trying to have closure around this tragedy, there's an urgency to this because the people who are most deeply and personally affected by this are before we get into a conversation about the intergenerational trauma, but the people who are most directly affected by this, uh, there there is an urgency to to, re to resolution. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that situation that you uh, summarized from our report uh, is around the Isle Lacrosse boarding school. Um, and so that raises also the issue of these institutions that weren't recognized under the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement and because they weren't funded by Canada or they were funded by the provinces. Um, and so my mandate actually um, includes other 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 institutions, associated sites. And, um, you know, I interpret that very broadly. <laughs> uh, maybe Minister Lametti doesn't like that, but I interpret it very broadly because, you know, one of the principles that we uh, are guiding principles that we have is that we have to follow the truth. And part of following the truth is that children were taken from communities to Indian residential schools, to Indian hospitals, to provincial reformatories, to provincial hospitals, mental health institutions, and they died at those institutions as well. Some are buried in cemeteries, but their families don't know where they're buried. Like I have come and helped so many families in the last year find where their loved one is buried in a cemetery, in a municipal cemetery. And wow. they had been searching for 70 years wow. uh, to find them. And so, you know, because of the policy to not pay to return children back to their home communities when they died in any of these institutions, um, you know, those children are missing to their communities. They're missing to their families. But these record holders in these institutions have information that can actually help families. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 we, we, we can't keep doing everything piecemeal when we're talking about reconciliation, like all these little bits and pieces that we're only working at one at a time. And we need to bring it all together um, and address, um, you know, for us to have, rep, you know, for us to have proper reconciliation, we have to have full reparations. Uh, you know, we need proper reparations for reconciliation and these little missing pieces of institutions that aren't recognized under the settlement agreement uh, or they're not federally, they weren't federally operated, they were provincially operated. Um, you know, we got to stop 
that I think the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry called it interjurisdictional neglect, right? This finger pointing back and forth uh, between governments, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, like, like that needs to stop. It's a problem not only specific to records. We see it if I take urban Indigenous issues as an example, and a majority of Indigenous people in Ontario live off reserve and in, and in urban areas, and it's seen to be provincial jurisdiction as a result. But of course, there ought to be a federal role to play when you consider intergenerational trauma, when you consider the deep responsibility the federal government ought to take on. And in, in, in when you say that, that fulsome sense of reconciliation, and there is just finger pointing back and forth. Now I'd say in my own, in my experience since 2015, it has gotten better. We just helped to fund a task, the umbrella group for now, I think 22 urban indigenous service organizations here in Toronto, providing $2 million. So they've got a permanent home. So it's starting to happen, but in fits and starts from the federal level, because institutionally, it's always been seen, this is provincial responsibility. We deal with on reserves and the province deals with what happens off reserve. But uh, I do, do want to get at that question of intergenerational trauma and, and, and the question of trauma writ large in your work, because it, it looms so large. On the one hand, this is about addressing trauma and this is about closure in many ways. On the other hand, if the process is not undertaken in a careful and sensitive way, it can be, and even if it is, it, it can be re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is um, very sacred work uh, that communities are doing and we're, you know, working with spirits of children um, and we're also working with survivors that are having every time another announcement of a recovery in a community is made, um, you know, that they're being reminded of the trauma that they lived uh, and being re-triggered. And then, you know, to add to it, it doesn't help with with the polarization that's happening across the country with the denialism and the increase in denialism. Um, You know, that's very violent towards survivors and communities. I, I hear from uh, the the groups, um, the teams that are doing the searches that, you know, after they make an announcement and uh, the hate mail that comes in every day to them, the phone calls, um, you know, I get I get hate mail practically every day uh, from uh, citizens with all this denialism demanding to see remains, um, you know, digging, dig them up so we know it's true or not true. Um, you know, so there's all these different levels of sort of the, tr- the trauma that's happening. Um, and, you know, I also think, uh, and you, you, you said you read that summary report. I mean, that gathering was held in Winnipeg and it was specifically to discuss how to address the trauma um, that's happening in the community. Um, and it was very clear um, that, you know, people need to sort of identify what the trauma is and this idea of uh, the grief that they're experiencing and the loss that they're experiencing. Like, uh, it's a different type of trauma uh, and it has different sort of remedies and ways of healing and uh, Indigenous elders and survivors uh, and healers, you know, talk about the importance of the healing needs to be Indigenous-led as well. Um, and, you know, it, it's no secret of the racism in the healthcare system towards Indigenous people. Um, you know, it's, we, we need 
federal, provincial, municipal governments to all step up and support Indigenous-led healing programs, Indigenous-led um, uh, practitioners. You know, we need Indigenous practitioners in different areas. We're, we're very Western-based science, Western medicine, uh, and don't recognize the importance of Indigenous uh, health practices uh, that need to actually be part of uh, of the healing plan moving forward. You identify data sovereignty as a as a core issue, and then and and also what you've just indicated there that sort of nature of we need the federal and provincial governments and all levels of government to really support mental health supports, Indigenous-led mental health supports, but also this idea of full wraparound supports for, for people who are suffering not only direct trauma and the, ling- you know, the continuing effects of, of that direct trauma, but also intergenerational trauma. And there's another line I really appreciated. I don't know where he's from, but Dr. James Makokis, who said, intergenerational healing takes time. It takes a lot of effort. And it can be done. And then the summary report goes through a, a number of values and in, in, in many ways is what it comes down to. And, and, and a frame of thinking about addressing trauma, because as you say, there is talk therapy, there's a, a, a more Western sort of approach to it. But I actually found there's a great amount of philosophy that that resides in the indigenous led approaches to addressing trauma as expressed in the report, talking about courage. Each person has to have the courage to make a decision to actively participate in their own healing. Kindness, choice, what, how, when, and to whom personal disclosures are shared. Balance between Western medical approaches and indigenous healing methods. This one, I think, is essential in all kinds of healing, which is a sense of belonging. And that you have to, whether it's your family, whether it's your community, the sense of it's not just about you. It's how you fit into a broader collective, the sense of safety and, and a safe space and joy and love. I mean, these are all, I don't want to say common sense, but it, it intuitively, as I'm reading through it, of course, these values matter in, in addressing trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting because some of those values, you know, I'm a lawyer and some of those values, when I talk about values like love and kindness, uh, when we think about the law, and, you know, I speak to law students a lot and I'm like, don't forget about love. Like, we're, we're talking, you know, we're dealing with real people <laughs> and yeah. real problems. Uh, and uh, they don't want things, I think also in that report, I, I can't remember who said it, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, you know, we don't, it shouldn't be done to us, right? Medicine shouldn't be done to us uh, without us knowing what's happening. And it, it's interesting because um, I am uh, doing some uh, research and reading around the healthcare system and the experiments that were happening on the, on the children in these institutions and um, just the lack of consent, the lack of uh, communities um, not knowing what was happening to their children is, um, you know, it's a crime. It, it, it was a crime. Um, and yeah, we hear over and over again, that, um, you know, that there needs to be justice and accountability for there to be healing as well. Uh, and we have a big problem because internationally and domestically right now, um, we don't have a solution uh, yet um, to how we can have real accountability uh, and justice for survivors. And so, um, you know, I, I when I talk to international uh, experts, I, I'm like, you know, the UN has failed us. <laughs> The UN's failing us, uh, and 
you know, there's some conventions that Canada hasn't signed on to that maybe they should have signed on to where there could be some avenues for justice and accountability that I'll probably speak about in my report. Um, but, you know, that we have to remember that healing, um, you know, I, I remember the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they always used to talk about how, you know, that we needed healing. It should have been the truth, healing and reconciliation process. Um, but I also think there needs to be justice <laughs> as part of, of that conversation as well, because um, like the quote that you said from Jimmy, you know, they haven't seen any justice or accountability and there, there's a lot of uh, injustice that's happened. Well, if closure is to be part of the picture and I'm going to mispronounce this very badly, maybe you can help me the Katagogan initiative. How do you, how do you pronounce that? It's K-A-A-T-A-G-O-G-I-N-G. But uh, anyway. For, yeah, anyway, from uh, up in Kenora. Yeah, and, yeah. and really they go through is bring together customary Anishinaabe and Western protocols, continue the journey of healing, seek and gain closure, and then protect future generations and make recommendations to ensure it never happens again. And if closure is one of those essential pillars, which it ought to be, justice is a necessary element to closure. And so uh, now a uh, question about what that justice ought to look like, and, and you aren't going to have the same sense of individual justice because of time. And, and, and yet a sense of justice to address the intergenerational consequences of, of what took place is still of course necessary. And before we get to that question of the UN, cause I know there was a UN special rapporteur visit recently in March, you mentioned denialism. I'm wondering, there are varying elements to denialism, I would expect. There is outright residential school system never took place. It's downplaying the effects of the residential school system in terms of its raise in debt. It's, it's downplaying the consequences for kids on, you know, as, as part of the residential school system. How would you describe the different kinds of denialism? And, and is there a an overriding, you know, some people might be just, you know, angry, radicalized, far right, and, and this never happened. And, and, and they're maybe incredibly vitriolic, racist people. I, I imagine the more pernicious denialism, though, is, is not that the more pernicious denialism is a sense of, well, it wasn't as bad as you're saying it was. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of uh, all of those things that you mentioned that we've been seeing. Um, I think, you know, first of all, I think, denialism or denying is kind of the last step of genocide, right? Like you deny it ever happened. <laughs> uh, and you work really hard to deny that and hide the records and, and make sure people can't uh, um, know the truth. And so, uh, you know, it's, it, it's expected. <laughs> it, it, it's expected that we would see this happening in Canada. Um, but, you know, it's clearly fueled by racism uh, as well. Um, and, uh, you know, those, you know, Murray Sinclair always used to talk about it. Yeah, it's like, like, just get over it, you know, like, just get over it. And we're giving you all this money and, and, you know, all, you just have your hand out and you want more and more and more. Um, and, um, you know, and I think part of it's fueled as well because by the fact that we haven't had full reparations, right? Like, it's just like constantly we're always fighting and fighting and fighting for more to get to reconciliation, to have full reparations, um, you know, but some of it's like, you know, it's hate. We have, and we have really poor laws in Canada to address hate <laughs> uh, and to put a stop to this. Um, but I think, um, 
can't remember. I think it was in the, uh, you, you mentioned the special rapporteur. I did write a section on denialism in my letter to the special rapporteur when I, uh, before I met with him. And, you know, it's, it's really important that Canadians address the denialism and it's not shouldered by indigenous people. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think I use the word violent, that it's violence, uh, in my letter to the rapporteur. Um, you know, I think that the province and the federal government and municipalities and all governments have a role to, pl- to play when it comes to addressing denialism, uh, to step up, speak up a- again and again and again and say this happened. Um, you know, I'm really struggling. I, I don't know. You know, when I when I did my little speech, when they announced that I was being appointed the special uh, rap, uh, interlocutor, um, a reporter asked me about denialism. And I had said, you know, um, those people um, need to sit and speak to a survivor, sit down and speak to a survivor. Yeah, um, okay. But but I also I also said, you know, it's in the TRC report. There are photographs. Um, and. You know, I've seen the photographs. There are photographs of kids being buried. Uh, and we shouldn't have to put that on the front page of the Globe and Mail, right? We shouldn't have to put that in the face of everyone um, because we know it's true. I mean, the TRC report talks about the recovery of children at sites before to Kemloops. Oh, yeah. It hadn't embedded itself in the public consciousness in the same way, but it was there in black and white in volume four. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no denying that, like, if we go down to um, um, in Alberta, there's no denying that those remains of those children came up when the river flooded and they had to rebury them. Like, there's no denying that. (laughs) Those kids were, were at a residential school site. So there's a couple of examples like that. Well, you mentioned, I want to get to actually volume four, but you, you mentioned uh, genocide. And I was asked this by Leah Gazan back when we were having a special debate. I quite like Leah. She's been a guest on the podcast before, uh, and we've, we've worked together on a livable basic income, and uh, I think she's great. Anyway, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Okay, so intent to destroy, there are stated intentions by government officials that this was an intent to take the Indian out of the child, as it were. It's, it's pretty straightforward. There was an intent in that regard. Killing members of the group. Okay, I, I think one could say, no, we don't reach that level, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Again, there are horrible things, abuse and trauma in residential schools, but I don't think there's that same institutional act of intent in that regard. But E is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. That's literally what this, that's literally what this was. Yeah. So I, I like on, on the face of it, pretty good argument to be made. And I know the TRC couched in cultural genocide, but, but you yourself have, you know, just recently, <laughs> you know, in this podcast, but also I think publicly I've seen you comment on this as, and, and just normalize the description of it as genocide. And, and, and that makes good sense to me. And then I think you're exactly right. I have the same instinct. It's like, it's there in the TRC report. And I mean, it's, it was interesting to go through it again. It's the majority of deaths, took place prior to 1940, but you, you can see uh, until the 1950s, 
this is the language of the TRC, Aboriginal children in residential schools died at a far higher rate than school-aged children in the general population. And it's only in the 1950s that the residential school death rates declined to a level comparable with that of the general school-aged population. There it is in black and white that not only did you have a system where it was intended to take people out of their own cultures and to destroy them as an indigenous people, but also it was incredibly destructive from the perspective of life and death. And when it comes to the, the, the explanation for those deaths, the TRC has a partial picture. Tuberculosis was the dominant reported cause of death. The other two major causes of death were influenza and pneumonia. But then they, they run through a litany of uh, it's there are accidental deaths. There are the fire hazards on site. There's just a complete and total disregard for adequate health care on site. And no wonder the average death rate is disproportionately higher in residential schools than in the general population. Yeah, I mean, I was um, maybe I'll, I'll just go back to the the TRC and the cultural genocide comment. Um, <laughs> so uh, I always like to remind people uh, about the settlement agreement and uh, the settlement agreement had conditions on the TRC and they weren't allowed to uh, make any findings of criminal or civil liability. Ah. And so. The word cultural was added because in the genocide convention, it doesn't include cultural genocide. Uh, and so there was some concern. But Murray Sinclair actually called it genocide because I remember getting the emails from the churches. <laughs> uh, <laughs> during the TRC, he did a radio, he did a TV interview and he called it genocide. And like everyone was losing their mind because he was going against what the terms of reference were for the TRC. Um, so, um, but I also think, you know, we're, we're what, eight years after the TRC, the conversation around genocide and the meaning of genocide has changed and has evolved since back during the TRC days, the academics and that whole discussion between Holocaust and genocide and what does it mean? And, you know, the difference in can you call this a genocide has actually evolved. And so um, I think that everyone's, uh, you know, all on the same page now that this was genocide. Uh, and, you know, we don't need to call it cultural genocide anymore. It was genocide. Um, and uh, on the deaths, um, it's interesting because, you know, that's just a snapshot. That volume four is just a snapshot because there were lots of records that hadn't been produced yet. Yeah, um, I think only half only half of the deaths, they they could figure out what had happened. Yeah. Um, but also so, you know, when we were doing that, that that part of the report, uh, it was really important that we didn't overcount. Right. Because that fuels the, the deniers <laughs> and we needed to be careful around that. And um, so, um, you know, the number was lower than what we and the TRC says that they expect the death rate is much higher uh, yeah. that they'll find. And we're learning that now as I talk to communities and even my own experience at the Mohawk Institute. Um, I think that the TRC had 48 deaths uh, identified at the Mohawk Institute and um you know, when I left uh, working at the Mohawk Institute to take on this role, we were up to 98 deaths. Wow. And that found in documents. That's just like, 
that's verified with documentation. Um, And so it's interesting because like, as I say, as more eyes are on the records, uh, more eyes and more records are becoming available, we're going to find more and more deaths um, that's going to be much higher. But, you know, I always worried about this. You know, I remember hiring the person that did the statistical analysis. I always worried about, you know, those charts about the cause of death and things like that. Because actually, when you look at the documentation of where the information is coming from, like the death certificates that were filed and many weren't filed. um, But if you look at the ones that were filed, they were signed by the principal. Yeah. They were signed by the Indian agent. Like there was no doctor. (laughs) You know, so how does anyone have any trust in in the truth of those records um so you know we we need to we need to keep that in mind as well um you know we hear that a lot too when we were talking about denialism it's like oh well everyone was dying of tb well not at the rate that indigenous yeah not even close it was not even close that's it's shocking it's like we're talking in the uh this is again to your point this is trc statistical analysis which is undercounting to a significant degree because of the inability to access records and the just records were not available in the same way that they are today. Uh, and even today, we're not having the records that should be available. And and even there, we're talking about uh, 2.5 to 3% clip that people were dying. It's, 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 it's wild. And, then, and that's like on an annual basis. Yeah. Imagine sending your kid to school and, tw- you know, in a school of a thousand people down the road, 25 People are dying a year, and that's, that's well beyond the 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 average. And you can look at the chart, and that's well beyond the average based on an undercounting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's I I mean, you know, I people say this all the time. You know, like uh, the the conditions that you know the, the government and the churches created the conditions that allowed for the deaths of these children. Right, yep. the overcrowding, not providing food, starving the kids, um, and the other types of experimentations that were going on I- inside the schools. I mean, I don't know if you saw um, uh, Saddle Lake when they did their announcement around the um, contaminated milk that was being given to the children uh, that was uh, infected with TB. I mean, there's records that show that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. you know, it, it's... Definitely uh, criminal behavior, in my view. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, at a minimum criminal negligence, and that's before you even get to the nastiness of assaults and 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 and, and endemic abuse. And it's 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 hard reading actually when you go try and go through volume four. And I, I imagine it was exhausting just on an emotional level for you and and Murray and others that were actively involved in hearing stories and 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 hearing people's trauma. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, one of the survivors I'll always remember was uh, one of the men that um, was testifying about how he used to have to dig the graves, um, you know, in Alberta. Oh my God. Oh so my that, God. that is in Edmonton. And I actually was just went to that graveyard uh, just last week uh, to pay respects. Ni- 98 uh, indigenous uh, people buried um, at, in St. Albert, in the city of municipality of St. Albert, which is just by Edmonton. Uh, and uh, people were buried from the Charles Camsell Indian Hospital. Uh, and they, the kids from the residential school had to dig the graves. Um, and there's testimony uh, from a sur- 
survivor who said they're not just in that cemetery because they recall they were like burying them all over the lands. So, oh, my God. Um, yeah, because the cemetery is just down the road from the, the residential school, the old site of the residential school. Uh, yeah, you identify barriers with respect to record keeping. You've also identified in your work barriers around access to land even because some of these sites are on private land now and we need to address that barrier, which is a, a legal barrier that we have to, to work around. The denialism and, and, and combating denialism looms large and, and, and that makes a ton of sense. Wraparound supports also makes eminent sense. Education, commemoration, and memorialization around what happened and then specifically for families and communities to have that sense of closure. That all makes sense to me, and I'm sure it will loom large in the report and there will be some funding required, but the direction is clear to me. When it comes to the sense of further justice and reparations, which you, you said a couple of times, I don't want you to get ahead of yourself. you got to write a report. But what does that look like exactly? I mean, I, I found, I have to say, uh, reading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, I found it a very serious and smart roadmap. I could take it and run with it. I could, it's clear for someone in my position or others who care to say, I'm going to advocate for this and here are concrete things that we need to do. I found the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry so all-encompassing that it was hard to have the same feel for that, like a, a basic income. And, and it, it just was... I understand, of course, you know, especially you look at intergenerational trauma and the over-policing and you look at the uh, the poverty numbers, which are unfair when you look at urban indigenous people or indigenous people writ large versus the general population even today. So I understand the calls across the board, but they were a lot harder to action in quite the same way. So when you think of that broader conversation around justice and and delivering justice and reparations, do you have a sense of addressing the scale of the challenge and doing and doing right by the scale of the challenge at the same time as charting a practical path forward for governments. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, that's, that's like final report. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, a couple of things come to mind um, and, you know, just like, uh, you know, and, and to use, uh, you know, I worked in government to use government language, which I hate, you know, the low hanging <laughs> fruit or the quick wins. Uh, <laughs> I hate that language. Uh, but, you know, there are some really important things that I think that, that can happen, um, you know, and, and when we talk about, uh, you know, policing, for example, um you know, I say this to police services all the time. The only police services that weren't involved in kidnapping the children and taking them to these institutions was uh, First Nations police. And uh, isn't it shameful that we don't have a First Nations Policing Act yet, uh, and they continue to be underfunded? Um, and, you know, wouldn't it be really important if we had a specialized First Nations police unit that can do these investigations uh, for and on behalf of communities and with communities, um, you know, and so, you know, th that's like a, a piece that's really important to me thinking about about that. We, we have expertise in our communities uh, and we have to continue to build that expertise. Um, you know, I, I look at the, uh, you probably saw that I wasn't too pleased with the International Commission on Missing Persons and that contract that was signed by Canada. Um, 
you know, why why can't we have an indigenous persons mis- missing persons commission that's led by indigenous people, governed by indigenous people? Why are we taking money and sending it outside of the country and not investing it in our own people? Um, I don't understand that. So, um, you know, so uh, uh, and just imagine an, an indigenous missing persons commission that could do the work that needs to be done around missing and murdering indigenous women and girls that can continue to do the work that needs to happen uh, in relation to the missing children and work with communities and help communities connect with one another. Um, so, you know, I I also think, you know, there's some things that, um, you know, some conventions and some uh, possibilities in the international world that um, Canada has avoided uh, by not signing certain agreements that I think it would be important uh, to look at those. Um, You know, the human rights tribunals with the American states is an important mechanism that um, could bring some justice and accountability, but we're not a member state. Uh, You know, so, um, you know, so really, I've I've been really thinking as as I talk to community members and leadership um, about how we can sort of move that bar when it comes to justice and accountability. But as you say, you know, justice means something different to every different person you speak to, uh, you know, to survivors, um, just like reconciliation means something different to every person you speak to. Um, but how do we find justice for those children? And, you know, an, el- an elder said to me um, w- one day, uh, told me to remember that I have to speak for the children. Um, and so what would justice look like for those children? Um, and to make sure that their bodies are treated with uh, respect and dignity that they never had when they were in the schools is really important to make sure that we don't have campgrounds on top of the burial grounds of these children, to make sure that proper ceremonies uh, were done that connect them back to their home territories. Um, You know, repatriation doesn't always mean moving the the ancestors' bones, right? Repatriation could be different things. Um, And for some, that's that's the justice that they're seeking. Yeah. Um, So, you know, so I think Choices and options are really important because we have very diverse uh, ideas. We have very diverse um, protocols and indigenous laws and um, and different needs and wants that communities want to see happen. And so, um, you know, I, I would say, like, I, I voiced this to Minister Miller. I was like, why did you handpick the ICMP? Because there's another entity in Guatemala. So if it, someone wants to use the Guatemala people, they should be allowed to use the Guatemala people <laughs> to come up and do the, the exhumations or DNA testing. That's what that's what self-governance, self-determination yeah. is. You have choice. We don't need the colonial government to say, oh, we handpicked this white organization who is very misleading. You know, they're very misleading. They say things like, you know, they, you put the word international in there and then all of a sudden they like people to think that they're somehow going to come in and prosecute people because that's not what they do, you know, and they use words like we're a treaty organization. Well, you you have an agreement of five countries that 
came together. And by the way, Canada didn't sign, isn't one of those countries. Um, you know, so it's, I find them very misleading in how they portray themselves. Like we're the only internationally recognized organization. <laughs> and I'm like, actually, and in fact, they've been kicked out of indigenous communities oh, no. uh, in Colombia. And so, you know, I'm, Hey, I'm not going to get in the way of any leadership that wants to bring them in. Um, I think the better agreement would have been, Hey, ICMP, if any First Nation wants to hire you, we'll pay. Yeah, so that's – I just found it curious, I will say. It's curious to me that the office of the special interlocutor responsible for this very issue would not have been tasked with figuring this out. I, I If I were – to say, and, and it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, which is have your list of approved vendors of sorts for DNA tracing and, and, and doing the more forensic work. And these are ones that we've vetted. Away you go. We'll pay for it. Here are a list of two, three, four, five, um, and and maintain a level of choice and responsibility there. Uh, I And if there are other organizations that a particular community wanted to come to and say, well, we want to use this one instead than to make sure that there's collaboration and sign off there too. I, but the curious thing to me was I saw you making, and you've, you've repeated some of the criticisms, but I saw you make criticisms. And the, my sense was why are there criticisms when wouldn't we ask Kimberly to just manage this process? I don't know. What am I missing here? But anyway, yeah, I don't, but I don't it's want... not even just me. It's the national advisory committee as well. Yeah, right? Exactly, like exactly, we have exactly. a task force, like, Exactly. We already have an indigenous-led task force of experts, um, but anyway. Yeah, we- no. So, so point well taken. Actually, a point reinforced by the UN Special uh, Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples after that visit, which I want to get to. I just have one other question because you raised it, which is around policing, because you have led a very interesting career. You have somehow found your way to be the executive director of Aboriginal Legal Services to then helping to run the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to then playing a significant role in the civil service in Ontario to then being the special interlocutor. And uh, you chaired in the middle there somewhere, I think in 2019, you chaired a significant report through the uh, was it the Council of Canadian Academies on in, on policing, Indigenous policing? And you've reinforced one of those findings, which is First Nations Policing Act and really resource First Nations policing, because it all comes down to trust, of course. And that's a big part of trust. Now, I have previously said, though, that a majority of Indigenous people in Ontario are living off reserve. And... First Nations policing, a First Nations policing act is not going to solve trust issues for those people. And how would you think through that problem when it comes to existing police forces, whether it's contracted out RCMP or whether it's provincial agencies or municipal agencies in the case of Toronto? How how do we address the deep-seated distrust, the impact of the way I think your report put it, the impact of colonialism continues to reverberate in Indigenous communities and confronting this history as part of the challenge of achieving relevant and decolonized policing. How do we get there for police forces that aren't First Nations police forces? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really uh, 
you know, this has been a conversation that's been going on for decades, and the report yeah. does try to address uh, the issue of urban uh, Indigenous people and policing. And, you know, I live in Toronto. Uh, I was uh, on, I think, five different chiefs of police uh, advisory groups uh, to the Toronto Police Service. Uh, I saw the changes that happened at the Toronto Police Service with the peacekeeping unit um, that used to be in in in, um, in the Toronto Service. Um, you know, I remember those days when I started working at Aboriginal Legal Services. We had an Indigenous peacekeeping service that were um, police officers that you could call. Like you would have their phone number and you could call them and say, something is going down at the corner of Young and Dundas with these officers. And they would actually drive over and try and de-escalate what was happening with that Indigenous homeless person uh, uh-huh. with, with the police. Um, and somehow over the years, First Nations uh, units uh, within municipal police services became the unit that you didn't want to be in if you were an Indigenous officer, because you were just there to spy on the community, or you were just, you're just there Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, go to ceremony, go to the, you know, the, to the schools and and teach about Indigenous policing and try and recruit people. Um, It was no, it wasn't about policing or peacekeeping anymore. It was just sort of being that token Indigenous person uh, that you get sent to community events to pretend that, you know, that the police services is interested (laughs) in being, having you part of the the community. Um, So, you know, I think it's really important. Like when it's, when I think about that, this idea of a Indigenous Missing Persons Commission with a specialized police unit uh, of Indigenous police officers, it is about policing. It's about peacekeeping and doing it in different ways. And I think um, for far too long, and you know, the policing report talks about this, you know, the, the style of policing that was brought here to Canada uh, was specifically to take the land away from Indigenous people. Um, you know, our first police service in Canada was under Indian affairs. It wasn't under public safety. And we haven't shifted that that ship (laughs) like it's still going along that way and acting the way it did when it was first set up the the concept of policing in Canada and and we need to change that I mean listen to all these calls of you know to to defund the police and put the money into the front end of the system uh and to support communities um you know we haven't gotten there uh and you know so I think you know, building trust with municipal police services is is really important. You know, I was quite involved with Thunder Bay um, and there's so much racism uh, in some of the police services uh, that are in municipalities that, um, you know, we have a, a little bit of truth telling uh, to come out before we can get to any kind of reconciliation with those services. Um, but each service needs to have their own action plan on what they're going to do. You know, I was... Uh, there's an example uh, in Sutina, in Alberta, um, the Sutina Police Service. They actually got um, got contracted by the neighboring community to police their community. So the non-Indigenous community hired the Indigenous Police Service to police their community uh, because they liked the way they were doing because it was the better way. Um, and, you know, and we write about that police service. They, they hadn't contracted yet in the report. That's a subsequent to our report that happened. Uh, but it's just, if you read the, the policing report, you know, it talks about uh, how their uh, police service, they, they actually went to and met with 
the community members uh, and ask them, how are we doing? And what would you like us to do better? And what's important to you? Um, you know, and as we, you know, that's an important model, even though it's like smaller community, it's not Toronto, but the police need to start asking, what do you want us to do better? And what's wrong instead of always fighting against the citizens <laughs> and not listening to the citizens about about the importance, uh, what they want and don't want from their police service. Well, I think that's, ex- no, I think that's exactly right. And I think, to your point, it's about looking at best practices that exist across the country in different municipalities and, and different jurisdictions and lifting them up and saying, we don't have to reinvent wheels. We we can see, based on varied history, what works and what doesn't work. And we're going to double down on what works and, and support what works and integrate what works into into what we do. I I will say also, and this gets to a question of, you see, because of intergenerational trauma, a disproportionate impact around poverty, around mental health, around addictions. And then we task police, which, as you say, are deeply embedded in that colonized history. And we have police that then become tasked with addressing for why we have set up the system in this way. I, I have no idea why, but police become the first responders to address poverty, mental health and addictions. And it it's not going to address any of that history in a positive way that, you know, if there's an auto theft in East York, then police are of course the right response. But if someone is suffering from an addiction issue, then a different response is, is warranted. If someone is, uh, committed some petty theft because they're living in deep poverty, a different response is, is probably warranted in, in, in many respects. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I, I take your point and I, and I think it's first nations policing act for then first nations communities. And then uh, a much bigger picture rethink of where, where are police most effective? And then how do we rebuild trust to, to deliver public safety more effectively? Yeah. And, you know, I also think, you know, it's interesting, you know, when we look at the budgets of police services um, and you look where they put those monies to their to to those things that you talk about, like where you have the, the you know, we have some unique programs where there's the mental health um, yeah. support yeah. person that goes with the police. Um, we always underfund those programs compared <laughs> yes. to, you know, getting the toys and the things, that, you know, all the things that police officers want, new cars and yeah. new new tasers and things like that. I mean, you know, I was shocked when I learned that the Thunder Bay Police Service had a restraint chair in their police station uh, and they couldn't they, they were saying they couldn't afford to put name tags on the police officers uh, uniforms, but they could afford this fancy restraint chair where there are no protocol, like there are no rules or regulations in the province of Ontario on the use of restraint chairs in police detachments. We have all kinds of rules around restraint chairs in, in correctional facilities because people die in these chairs. And we don't have any rules around that in the province of Ontario. Um, you know, there's so many deaths recorded in the United States of pl- people dying in those restraint chairs. Um, you know, so it's like looking at those budgets of the police services and seeing where they're putting their money and, you know, maybe saying, well, we're not going to fund you unless you put X percentage of money towards working with Indigenous people or with the Black community and 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 building that trust, yeah. you know, being more directive on where the money goes. 
especially when we can we see continued increases in funding and something's got to give in terms of delivering more effective policing i mean i mean at the end of the day you know it gets weaponized in politics unfortunately as you know the language of defund the police gets weaponized and, and everything else isn't it just a conversation about the most effective public safety we can have and that in many cases it's about delivering public health to protect public safety. In other cases, it's about building trust to deliver more effective public safety. And it is rethinking budget allocations around this question of effectiveness. Yes, fairness, but also effectiveness. Um, Okay, I want to close with the UN Special Rapporteur. Uh, They had a lot to say in their report after their March 1st to 10th visit. They reiterated many of your concerns that you've echoed here about that contract with the International Commission that there was no or a lack of consultation around. So so they certainly read your submission and they reiterated much of it. They also reiterated, I think, which is, this seemed to me to me to be the correct take, but I wonder what your take is on it. They, they basically highlight a number of important pro- elements of progress. And they, whether it's the adoption of UNDRIP or whether it is the legislation around child welfare, whether it is significant new funding to close gaps, although not quite where it needs to be. The message seems to be, and I think fairly, that we've seen progress made by Canada towards the promotion and protection of the rights of Indigenous peoples over the last 10 years, and certainly over the last, I think, you know, they say since the visits of my predecessors in 2003 and 2013, I think over the last 10, I would say, I would argue in a very partisan way since 2015, but, but regardless, in the last 10 years, let's say fairly, there's been a lot of progress. And then the rapporteur goes on to say, but the progress isn't, isn't sufficient. That seems to me to be the right analysis. And, and you look at the fact that UNDRIP has not been adopted by Ontario. You look at the fact that we talk about education in the school system. There's not sufficient education around residential schools in the school system here in Ontario. But then also at all levels, frankly, where you talk about reparations, but dollars and cents to support those wraparound services, to support justice, to support ongoing features to it and, and, and policy supports to address the fact there's intergenerational trauma and intergenerational injustice. So uh, progress, but imperfect and not yet where we need to be that that seems to be the right read yeah and you know and i i agree with him uh you know i i met with the special rapporteur uh when he did his visit uh to canada and i look forward to the full report that he's going to issue um to the un um but you know one of the things that that i i uh, think about is of the 94 calls to action from the trc um the one that wasn't implemented uh, and is in the process of being implemented now is that Council for Reconciliation. And, um, you know, that Council for Reconciliation was meant to be the oversight body to the implementation of the 94 calls to action. And that one, in my view, should have been the first one implemented by Canada. Um, Because if you go back to that in the the number is escaping me what number it is in the calls to action. But if you go back to that call to action, it talks about the obligation of provincial governments reporting to the council uh, of 
get providing statistics of providing data of measuring progress. And here we are eight years later, and we haven't been able to measure the progress in the way that the TRC wanted us to be doing. Um, and so we rely on these uh, reports coming out of places like, um, you know, at the Toronto Metropolitan University Yellowhead, where they do these analysis or, you know, people doing it on their own at the side of their desk, whether TRC calls to action have been implemented. And, you know, some of that information is not accurate, uh, yeah. you know, and just because I personally, you know, had worked uh, in the province of Ontario and I was tasked with implementing the justice calls to action in the province. And I know exactly what was implemented and what wasn't uh, in relation to, to the, those calls to action, but they never find their way in these reports. Um, and so I think this, you know, I think that's a really important if we can get that moving um, and fix the problems that have been raised by the Inuit and other uh, entities that were concerned about the makeup of the board um, of directors of the, of the organization. Um, I think that that will help us. That will help us move forward. And um, on a quicker pace, I mean, I say this too, I mean, government, government processes um, are not good for reconciliation, <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, the whole Treasury Board process, it really impedes our ability uh, to move reconciliation forward. Um, you know, these ideas like, oh, we, we got to get to Treasury Board to get the money real fast and you don't have time to consult with people. And then you just, you know, make up a program just so you can get the money. And, you know, it's it's it the whole colonial machinery is is a problem to be put in charge of reconciliation, <laughs> you know, and, you know, even with my mandate, you know, things like, you know, whether I'm allowed to feed survivors when they come to my gatherings, you know, and I'm like, I'm feeding them and you figure it out, you figure it out, DOJ, I'm doing it, <laughs> you know, and it's, so, you know, there, there, there's some problems, there's some barriers uh, in our own, in those processes that have been set up, but I, I do I do hold out some kind of hope that the Council for Reconciliation will help us move reconciliation along uh, once we have that obligation and that entity that's out there asking, what are you doing and what have you done? And and show us, prove it to us that you've done it. <laughs> that's a, and, and having a trusted body do it. I think that's a good place to close because I I have asked at various points over the last seven and a half years Give me the list of the 94 and give me the progress report on the 94. And then I get pointed to a government website, which fairly in some cases is quite detailed and in other cases is quite vague about and, and it's unclear. Is the promise fulfilled? Like what's the OK money's been allocated, but is it enough money and and who's the arbiter and how much of the money has been delivered of what's been allocated and of the money that's been delivered? What has it gone to and what what are the outcomes and what are the results? And. It's always a difficult process when governments, biased as they are towards their own policies and, and, and progress, say everything's in good shape. And so having a third party that is vested with that accountability mandate is incredibly important. And it would be nice to then walk into an election cycle and to be able to say the Council on Reconciliation says that 60% are fulfilled and 30% are, are underway. And, but these ones, particular ones are, are going sideways and more work needs to be done and having some trusted and independent. And because you started by saying an independent special interlocutor, having a sense of independence to it, I think is incredibly important. Um, and would be helpful to then have a push in a position like mine where you want to say, okay, government, 
appreciate the direction. Now move faster and, and, and let's make sure we're meeting the commitments that we've set for ourselves and, and, and doing it in a more fulsome way. Having some place to point to, like the PBO is very helpful at times. We're not, you know, we're not on pace or this isn't being done enough or we're not spending enough. And having some independent body that is tasked with this in a serious way can, would be very helpful. So thank you for your time. Thanks for all that you're doing. Thanks for all you've done. Um, and I look forward to seeing all that you continue to accomplish. And I, I will look very closely towards your final report. And I look forward to bothering ministers Lametti and Miller when you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm issuing the interim report in June. Uh, okay, so there'll be some information in there that you could uh, have a look at. But I really appreciate you taking the time with me for the conversation. I think the more people that know about the work and, and the progress of the work, um, uh, the better we'll be. Um, for It'll be better for everyone. Thanks, Kimberly. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the time. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I remember participating in the late night debate in the wake of the finding of 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops. And there have been many, many additional discoveries since, obviously. So the work of Kimberly Murray, the work she's tasked with, is incredibly important. And her emphasis on the independent role she plays is particularly welcome in my mind. So I look forward to reading her final work. As always, you can find past episodes at uncommons.ca. Subscribe and leave a positive review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. Find me on social media at B-E-Y-N-A-T-E. And otherwise, until next time.